we'll uh, jump into our study here. Our God in heaven, thank you so much for this day, and thank you, Father, so much for all the things that you do for us and every single day. God, as we come bowing down before you this morning, you know, just a short while gathering together as your people, worshiping you and offering you, Father, the praise that you so richly deserve, we ask God that uh, as we do so, we may not come into the worship assembly uh, haphazardly or carelessly, but Father, may we examine ourselves, may we examine our relationship to you, examine our relationship with other Christians and with the lost, and Father, may it be that we can worship you, as the psalmist said, in the beauty of holiness. Thank you, Father, so much for the saints that are here at this place. We pray, Father, that you bless this church, bless its elders, bless the deacons, bless the ministers, bless the members, all the Bible class teachers, all of those, dear God, that are striving to live godly in Christ Jesus. We're thankful so much, God, for the ways that you blessed us through him. And Father, may it be that if our hearts ever grow cold or if we ever grow callous towards the message of Jesus Christ and what it means to live as your children, we pray, God, that you would rebuke us, Father, that you would humble us, that you would remind us, Father, of what it is that uh, we have in Christ Jesus. Father, we know that uh, we can be that example and that encouragement. We can be the answer to somebody's prayer. If it is, Father, that we're looking out for one another, striving to God that uh, we um, examine those who are not here this morning, certainly by, uh, by physical you know, limitations, for those who are hurting and suffering and laboring in difficult circumstances, we're mindful of them. We're mindful, Father, of the families that are hurting, those who have lost loved ones recently. Father, for those who are um, recognizing, dear God, that the end is not far off, we pray, Father, that we can, again, be a good encouragement and a blessing for them. We're mindful, Father, of those who are not here this morning because of choice, because it is that maybe the world has deceived them into thinking that what we're doing here this morning is not that important. <coughs> But it is that uh, they don't understand maybe the value. Father, again, maybe it is that we can be a good encouragement and be able to speak those words that they need to hear so it is that they make, make their lives right. Thank you, Father, so much for the church here. Once again, we're thankful, Father, so much for your grace and for your mercy. And, Father, as it is that we've been extended that grace and that mercy and patience, Father, may it, is, it, may it be that we... Uh, go out and seek to shine the light of Christ so that others may see our good works and glorify you. Bless you, God, for all you've done, for all you're going to do. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. We are studying, as we mentioned, about words. And uh, Alan um, started on Wednesday night to talk about uh, the word bread. And he was doing a special word study on that and look forward to that uh, in his devotionals on Wednesday evening. But... Why is it that we need to study words, particularly about in the New Testament or Old Testament for that matter? Why is it that we need to care about what the words say? I ask this for you to answer so that, uh, you know, we can maybe generate some kind of discussion, whatever the auditorium will allow. Yes, sir. One small contribution for the first uh, 16, 17 years of my life, I, I, the preacher there was a, a word person. From the Greek on up, and so so much of his teaching and what I've learned about the Bible had to do with what he what he drew from the words of the Bible and and, and the words behind the words of the Bible. Okay. It can be a blessing when you have a preacher or teacher, as Danny did, as he mentioned about uh, the first 17 years of him being a Christian, that uh, you have somebody who's invested in really understanding what a word means, what uh, the meanings behind the meanings are. Again, realize that the Bible didn't come to us in English. 
the Old Testament came to us in Hebrew and the New Testament came in, uh, in the majority Koine Greek, that is the common Greek of the day uh, in the first century, but also Aramaic some. So you understand that there's a language barrier, as we talked about uh, and, and interpretation last quarter, that there's a language barrier that has to be overcome in order for us to better understand what the Bible is and what it means. And, and maybe you read something across uh, the page and say, I don't know what that word means. I don't know what that phrase means. And so if it is, you can go in and look at the individual words and have a good understanding what those are. It'll help us uh, overall to understand uh, how the Bible's put together. Why else is it important to understand words? All right, Morris says that sometimes it is that one Greek word can be translated uh, with an English phrase. Sometimes it is an English phrase is only one Greek word and vice versa. And so when you look at uh, a particular word, you can see that this carries with it, um, you know, uh, you know, an entire verb phrase that we'll use, uh, but it's just contained within one, uh, one Greek word. And so, again, it's a good idea to take a look at it and say, this is the way it is. We'll look at that some with uh, our sermon this morning from Luke chapter 19. Uh, the excuse of the man who had the mina, and he went away and hid it in a handkerchief. Um, how many words he uses in order to try and describe uh, why it was that he did, wasn't faithful in his service. Very good. Why else? It's not only in English, but also that you'll find that within the realm of English translations and even some paraphrases, they're going to translate that same word different ways based upon the context. Yes, absolutely. Uh, one more over here. We want to try and establish a correct interpretation. Um, Again, how is this best rendered within the context? I want to get as close to the, uh, to the, if I'm looking at the New Testament, to the way that they would have used it back in the first century versus uh, me trying to translate it today in just uh, modern English without any kind of consideration for what happened back then and how they would have read that word. And so again, if we can get all the way back to the very beginning when they would have used that word and how they would have used that word, it's going to help us as well. I had one man describe it like this. If you can read the English version, it's kind of like you're watching a black and white TV. Right? You remember, uh, well, some of you may remember. Uh, I don't necessarily, but you remember some of the old, old black and white TV shows. I used to watch Leave it to Beaver some, you know, and whenever I'd come home from a lunch break, whenever Catherine was still working, and they had a retro TV channel. So I'd turn it on and watch an episode of Leave it to Beaver before heading back to work. But you understand that, you know, there's some things that may be lost within a black and white version. You can still get the details and still get the big picture. But if you can look back to the original languages, you can really have an opportunity to see things, if not in technicolor, then full living color um, as it is. And again, if you can look at those things and see those things uh, uh, in the original, it makes your understanding of it all the deeper. All right. Why study words? If you look on your page here, we'll go through some of these things together quickly. 
and then um, move along to uh, the process of actually how to do a word study. Just as great doors swing on small hinges, so the important theological statements of the Bible often depend on even the smallest words, even such as prepositions and articles. Flip over to Acts 2, verse 38, just for a moment. Acts 2, verse 38, has long been a battleground for people who have looked at a simple Greek preposition. And they've said, what does that preposition really mean? When you get to Acts 2, verse 38, it's one that we should know by heart. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In the Greek word, the word for, F-O-R, is also translated by a three-letter Greek word, ace, or ice, depending on how you, how you say it, E-I-S. And some have taken that word, that preposition, ace, and they've said, well, no, 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 what it's doing is it's looking backwards, and it's saying, ace is your baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because you have received the remission of your sins. All right? It's kind of like we say, um, uh, I have... I have mowed my lawn, for it was very long. All right? I'm looking backwards, and I've mowed my lawn, and now it is that I'm looking backwards and saying, it's, it's done because of this. Right? Problem with that is, is that ace is a Greek preposition, as it's used in the New Testament, always looks forward. That is, to the end of. So, it is that every time I look up that preposition and how it's used within that Koine Greek, you're never going to find it looking back because of something. So, it's not that we're baptized because we have already received the remission of sins, but it's always baptized ace, toward, to the remission of sins. You see? That one little word, have, <laughs> there's been many of debate that's brought that up again and again and again and trying to prove that, it all, that it's looking backwards, but... What you're going to find consistently is that the way that the Greeks would have used it and that there's no translator alive that would render that because of the remission of sins, it's a very, very important theological point. Why is it that we're baptized? Is it because we've already received the remission of sins or is it because we need to receive the remission of sins? That's the uh, point that that little Greek word, three letters, hangs on. I need to understand something about the words if I'm going to translate something correctly. Is that right? Doug, yes, sir. No, that's fine, and we're going to talk about baptism here after a little bit, but uh, turn to Matthew 26 and verse 28. <coughs> Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26 and verse 28. If you write a cross-reference to Acts 2.38 here in Matthew 26.28, you're going to find the exact same prepositional phrase. Jesus saying, verse 27, he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Same exact Greek words there in Matthew 26.28 that you're going to find in Acts 2.38. For the remission of sins. So here's the blood. Here's the cup that represents the blood of Jesus, right? And he's saying, this cup, I want you to drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the many because of the remission of sins, because your sins are already forgiven. Is that the idea of the phrase, of the passage? The answer is no. It's still something that's going to happen. 
It's for, this is for this purpose. This is because you need this. And so uh, that's, that's the way that it's um, in understanding the words and understanding the phrases that'll help us to, to look at. Number two, most great Bible teachings revolve around a single word, the word love, the word grace, the word justification. If I can look up the word love and see which word it is and how it's used in this particular phrase, it'll help me better understand the passage. Correct interpretation of biblical truth depends upon a correct understanding of word meanings. When the Bible was translated to English, there were 6,000 different uh, words used, whereas Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic used around 11,280 words. And often, as we mentioned just a moment ago, one English word is used for several terms. The original, uh, the example is servant, seven different Greek words, each with just a slightly different meaning. Um, two things to keep in mind as you study. Word studies must always be based upon the original, whatever language it is that the Bible was written in. Again, if you're looking at the New Testament, it's going to be Greek. If you're looking at the Old Testament, it's going to be Hebrew primarily. And so you need to always allow the context to indicate the ultimate meaning of the word study. What do you need? You need a Bible, of course. You need... Um, if it is that you're going to do this extensively, you may invest in this. You can probably find it like a half-price books. Um, you can probably find it pretty cheaply on Amazon, I would imagine, just uh, if you can find a good used version. This is a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. Or, yeah, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. I got one of these as a graduation present from uh, high school. And um, honestly, you know, for the first several years of my life, it was used as a paperweight, right? Because it's a, it's a massive uh, book. But as you begin to look and see the value of something like this, this is a, a valuable tool if you have a biblical library to add to it. There may be a better way without having to um, actually do this, and we'll show that and show that in just a moment. Um, you need a Vines Expository Dictionary. What Vines is doing is he's going to take the word and he's going to do a lot of the legwork for you in understanding how, and defining how it is that the Bible uses uh, particular words. And then again, if you're going to do more advanced studies, you can consider the following uh, tools. The ISBE, that's the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, Bible dictionaries, commentaries, um, especially, note that, uh, those written by our brethren. There are three common difficulties with regard to word studies. Number one, sometimes, as we mentioned, several words are translated just by one English word. The word love has five different Greek words with it. We use the word love for to say... I love ice cream. I love my wife. The way that the Greeks would have used those words based upon, uh, is based upon a lot of different uh, context. They had a word specifically for the sexual love between husband and wife. They have a word for um, the family love that a brother might feel for a brother. They have a friendship love that a biblical brother might feel for a biblical brother. They have an all-encompassing love that's uh, agape love, that is the self-sacrificial love, the type of love that a mother has for a child or a husband has for his wife, or um, um, a lot of different contexts use that word. But which word are we talking about? How is the way that he's going to use that based upon the way that Paul's going to write the, word, uh, the book in Romans or um, use the word in, in Galatians or uh, Philippians? Which word does he use and why is that important? Again, you'll get a better picture. You'll be able to see it in technicolor or living color as you, uh, as you study. Sometimes it is that a Greek word or a single word in the original is translated by a whole phrase in English. Right. So sometimes a single word in the original is translated by a whole phrase in English. Flip over to James chapter one just for a moment. 
sorry, James chapter 2. All the way from chapter 2, um, particularly through about the first 10 or 12 verses, you have a discussion of showing partiality within the Lord's body, within the assembly especially. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. If I go into the original and I begin to look at that word, what you're going to find is the word for receiving, right? Just as if uh, David were to pass me a ball, I'm going to receive that ball. But then there's also a word that's added to it. It's a, it's a compound word. Here's the word for receive, but here's also within the same word, the word for face. Don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with face receiving. What does that mean? Well, let's look at the illustration. If a man comes into your assembly and he's got fine clothes and a gold ring and, and dressed in fine clothes, and you also have a man who comes into the assembly wearing poor clothes or dirty clothes, and you say to the one wearing the fine clothes, you sit here in a good place. Oh, brother, we've got this pew just marked out right for you. We are so glad you're here today. We are so glad, and we want you to come back at any given opportunity. Would you like to go to lunch with us? And here's a man over here in dirty clothes, and maybe he kind of smells bad and looks bad. And you say, you know, we have a nursery or a cry room over here where you may feel more comfortable sitting, you know, if you want. Or, you know, there's, there's a pretty good view back here in our, in our foyer. And you head on back there, and then I know that you'll have just a command seat. So come on over here, brother. Have a seat down, and you, you go stand over there. What context does that have to do with face receiving? It's all about what you see with the eyes. It's all about looking and maybe desiring something that the rich man has and he'll go on to talk about that down in verse 12 and following. Having what the rich man has and having him there in your assembly is a prominent member of our congregation, but we have no interest in looking at this man in poor and ratty and smelly clothes, and we're going to send him out somewhere else. Face receiving, looking at the exterior, looking at um, what's very superficial. James says don't do that. Don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ like that. Make sure that you're not face receiving when you're uh, uh, receiving people into the assembly. Does that make sense? All right. And again, we wouldn't have never seen that if it hadn't been that we dive into the word partiality and look and see how that, uh, how that phrase is used. Questions or comments about that before we jump into how? If you look down at the very bottom, here's some suggested word studies. You want to get uh, get interested in doing these. Uh, some of these words, well, all of these words uh, will yield some wonderful results for you and you're uh, deepening your appreciation for God and for the things of God. And so if you want to take the word adoption, see how that word is used throughout the Bible or throughout the New Testament especially. Um, <coughs> excuse me, a word like worship. Go through and find the words that are defined as worship. Go through and mark them in your Bible and maybe mark which Strong's word it is. Is this the word that somebody's translated? That's uh, the Greek word latreia, latreo, which is service. Not necessarily the same as worship, but sometimes people will translate them the same. 
Um, here's the word worship. Here's the word for somebody who's falling down prostrate before somebody else. He is worshiping. All right, what's the difference? And again, you're going to uh, yield some wonderful things if it is that you choose to, uh, choose to do that. A lot of words maybe that we don't necessarily know what they mean. Propitiation. Propitiation. When was the last time you used that in a uh, regular conversation? Um, iniquity. Iniquity. We talk about sin, but what's an iniquity? What's an atonement? You know, a lot of these things, again, we've used the words for years, and maybe we're uh, just growing to understand what they are, but uh, uh, doing word studies and seeing how many times they're used within the New Testament or Old Testament and uh, seeing how they're used will really help us understand better um, what's going on. All right, flip over to the second page if you're following along. The word study method. Word study method. Basic word study is this. Number one, you choose a word. I believe you must start with a specific verse. I want to know how the word baptized is used from the verse we looked at just a moment ago in Acts 2 verse 38. Right? The reason why you need to start with a specific verse is because you're looking at one Greek word. However, there may be variations of that same word that we're going to see here in just a moment. And if I don't start with a specific verse to say, this is my pinpoint that I'm going to start with, then I can start looking at other verses that may use a similarity of a Greek word. And again, we'll look at that in just a moment, a similarity of Greek word, but it's not exactly the same word. And so I can really kind of start uh, confusing the issue and muddying the waters if I don't start with one specific Greek word in order to try and study. When I take my concordance and I begin to look up with the Strong's reference number, the way that Strong's work is it's just like a uh, dictionary. And what you're going to find is every single Greek word and every single Hebrew word that's used within the New Testament and Old Testament, and I can look it up here in the, the B section, and there's a word baptism, baptisms, Baptist, Baptists, again, this is based on the Old King James, a baptized, baptized, baptizest, baptizeth, baptizing, and then it jumps down to Barabbas, okay? So again, all of these different ones may be the same Greek word, or they may not be. They may be a little variation of uh, one or the other. And so again, you look at the concordance to look at the Strong's reference number. Using that reference number, you list all the possible ranges for what that is, okay? So I'm going to take, again, Greek uh, 907 is the, is the number. And I'm going to begin to look at it. I'm going to say, okay, which ones are translated? Baptize. I indeed baptize you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. John did baptize in the wilderness. The word baptized, past tense, is the same word. The word uh, baptizest, again, in Old King James, is still the same word. Baptizeth is also the same word. Baptizing. So again, all of these are the same. Some of them are different. Uh, using John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist, as we call him. That's Greek 910. Um, baptisms. And like uh, he uses there in Hebrews chapter 6 is 909. Uh, baptism, talking about the, uh, the, the, the noun, uh, noun form of it, 908. But again, you find that they're all listed right there for you in the Strong's Concordance. And as you begin to make a list of them and list of where the, the words are used, then it's going to, uh, to help you to do that. Just for reference... Here is ESOR, which I brought up last quarter. And if you've never heard of this program, and if we've, uh, you weren't in this class last time, ESOR is a free Bible study program. 
You can download it from e-sword.com, and it's just a template. All of this is is just a, a tool. The guy makes it available for free. All right, and so being free, you can uh, download the initial template, and then you can download a lot of different uh, uh, English and, well, otherwise, uh, different Bibles that you can get, maybe your preferred translation. But these are some of the ones that you can get. The American Standard Version, the Apostolic Bible, Polyglot with the Strong's Numbers, Bible in Basic English, Britain. All of these are free, and so I can just click on one, and uh, I can download it. There are a number of commentaries that you can get with this, and all of these are free. Again, you just click on it, you download it, and it's going to help you. Why is that important? It's important because what I can do, if I can make this window just a little bigger for us, is I can come down here to the book of Acts. Somebody let me know if the screen goes blank or does something quirky. I'm in Acts chapter 2, where we're, where we're talking about, beginning verse 38. And I'm going to jump down here to, keep going, verse 38. And I'm going to say, I want to know what this word baptized is. There is a version that's free that you can download, which is the King James Plus. And if you'll notice, you can mouse over it and it'll tell you exactly what it is. It's King James Version with the Strong's numbers already included in them. And so I click on that, and you'll note now that here's all the words in the King James Version, but they've now got the Strong's numbers out beside them. And then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized. There's Greek 907. That's the word that we're looking at. I click on that, and what I've also got down here is the way that Strong's defines that word. Baptizo gives you a nice little pronunciation guide. The word is to make whelm, that is, fully wet. Used only in the New Testament of ceremonial uh, ablution, especially technically the ordinance of Christian baptism. And then it gives you the different words that it's, uh, that it's translated as. John the Baptist, uh, the word baptize, the word wash. If you want a deeper Greek uh, version, you download Thayer's Greek definitions. Thayer is going to look at it a little bit more deeply, and he is a trusted resource and has been for generations. To dip repeatedly, to immerse, to submerge, as a vessel sunk. To cleanse by dipping or to submerging. To wash, to make oneself clean with water. To wash one's uh, self, to bathe. To overwhelm. And again, he talks about it in the parts of speech. That is the verb. And also gives you related words from Greek uh, 911, which is uh, babto, uh, which is a primary verb to whelm. That is to cover holy. So I take a look at that, and I say, okay, Greek 907, G907 is the one that I want. In order to do this, using this uh, uh, program, I come up here to the search, and I say, what do I want? I want all the cases where Greek 907 is used. It's going to immediately do a uh, search, and you'll note, again, we're dealing with Greek. So that means that I'm going to exclude the Old Testament, right? And so I'm only in the New Testament, beginning in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 6. It's going to list all the occasions where that same word is going to be used. Handy dandily, I have listed all those for you on the next page here. Just for a second, Greek 907, baptized, baptized, baptizing, or baptizes. There's 65 times that it's used in the uh, New Testament with 80 matches. That means that there's 80 times that it's actually used. Sometimes in a verse it may be used more than once, um, and, uh, and so that's the reason why there's a difference there. 
Look at how many times it's used in the book of Matthew. Eight times. Book of Mark, nine times. Uh, book of Luke, or sorry, uh, there's eight verses. There's 11 matches in Matthew. There's 12 times that it's used in Mark. There's 10 times it's used in uh, Luke. There's 13 times it's used in John. 21 times it's used in Acts. Two times it's used in Romans. 10 times it's used in 1 Corinthians. And one time it's used in Galatians. Now, as detectives, does that indicate anything to us? I'm looking at just the occurrence and the frequency of occurrences. What do you notice here about this list? Yes, sir. Most are in the book of Acts. Two to one. What does that indicate to us? Again, just looking at it objectively. What is the book of Acts? What's the design, designation for it? It's the establishment and early works of the New Testament church. What was important to that church? Again, even if we just wipe the slate clean and say we're going to eliminate all the thoughts about what baptism is and what it does and why it's important. And uh, if I look just at these numbers, what's it going to tell me? It's going to tell me it's important to the way that the church functions. It's going to tell me that it's something that's necessary maybe to uh, some part of the New Testament church. 21 times in this book of history that we have, the only book of history about the early Christians and what they did, um, that's, that's uh, dictated as narrative, as a story, rather. Um, so Acts, you've got 19 verses with 21 times that the word baptism is used. Again, you may want to look at it just from the epistles. What are the ways that Paul talks about um, um, baptism to Christians? Does he talk about it in terms of an outward sign of an inward grace? Does he talk about it in terms of something that, uh, that's necessary to salvation? Here's the other thing. People wonder why it is that, uh, that they're not hammering it on it in the epistles. Right out of how many epistles do we have you know, um, in the New Testament? And how many of them actually mention baptism? According to this list, what does it say? There's only really three that mention baptism at all. Why did the Holy Spirit not mention it more? Because it seems like it was already an assumption that this was something that you would have already done. If the New Testament books are written primarily to Christians, well, you've moved on beyond those things. As a growing Christian, as somebody who has been baptized into Christ, one of the uh, times that he uses in Romans, you've been baptized into Christ. You have now been raised to walk in newness of life. You are now a new creation, Romans chapter 6. As you move on from that, how is it that you're supposed to grow as a Christian? Again, just looking at the numbers and the way that the word is used within the New Testament is going to be one of those things that's going to uh, speak volumes to you, again, as we start to build a case to understand this word. Um, just for understanding, I didn't actually uh, count up all these myself, but you come down here to the end of your list, it says there's 65 verses found with 80 matches for the word, uh, Greek 907. But you come all the way down here to the end, and hey, look at that. That's the chart that you have there on your, on your page. It gives you the breakdown of how many uh, times it's used and uh, what, what books it's used. Questions or comments about that? Again, what we've done is we've taken the Strong's Concordance. And Strong's Concordance is something that you can download for eSword for free. If you want the book, absolutely get it. But realize that you can also have it on your computer without having to uh, take up the book, uh, book storage space on your, uh, on your shelf. 
All right, very well. Um, jumping back to the other page. So you want to take a look at listing all occurrences of the word on a book-by-book -book basis. Additionally, under this step, it might be a help to make a full list on a shepherd's sheet of paper of all the verses where this word is used and make a note of how the word is used in each particular reference. It might be helpful to group the references into categories when you see the word being used the same way in different passages. All right. What we're going to do next is take a look up all the other reference numbers of the same English word. You write the original, you write the range of meanings. Um, the example is that he gives us answer in the New Testament represented by Strong's number. Here's all the different words, 611, 626, 470, 3004, 5538, that talk about the word answer. All those are used. I want to take those, I want to look at them by an individual basis and then group them together based upon how they're used. If you'll flip over to the back page of the baptism sheet there I gave you. The next step is to talk about uh, looking it up in vines. And again, we've got a copy of that in our uh, church library if you're interested in that. But vines will be a good, uh, good indication about how it is that uh, he's going to define it. Vines tells us that the word baptize means to dip. It was used among the Greeks to signify the dyeing of a garment and the drawing of water by the dipping of a vessel into another. So here's a question. There are some that will use this word, baptizo, Greek, to sprinkle, or to take some and pour. As they would have used it originally, how is it used? Here is a garment. Anybody ever did the do the tie-dyeing, right? As uh, kind of passed away with the late 80s. But you remember, you, take a, you want to dye a shirt. Here's a white shirt. What do I need to do? Here's the pool of the green water, whatever it is, whatever color I want to dye it. I'm going to take the shirt and I'm just going to dip it really quickly. Is that going to be baptizo? What about taking some of the water and sprinkling it on there? I'm dyeing the shirt, right? But we want to dye the whole shirt. So what you're talking about is dipping. You're talking about plunging. You're talking about overwhelming that shirt, submerging that shirt. And when you pull it back out, what have you got? You've got a shirt that's completely dyed in that color. That's the Greek word. And so automatically, just by understanding the word, it's already excluded two of the errors that's propagated by a lot of the religious world today. That is, you can't just sprinkle and say that that's baptizo. That's Greek 907. You can't just pour water over somebody's head and say that's baptizo. That's this. Again, we're harping on baptism this morning because we're talking about this particular word. We want to make sure that we understand exactly what it's, uh, what it's talking about. Um, sometimes in the Greek New Testament, it's described as somebody washing oneself. Um, take a look at Luke eleven thirty-eight. 38. Luke 11, verse 38. All right, so a Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him, to come and eat his lunch or supper with him. He goes and he sits down to eat. When the Pharisee saw him go and sit down and eat, he marveled that he had not first baptizo, washed before dinner. All right? There is an occurrence of the word that's not talking about uh, divine grace meeting human obedience. This is not Jesus 
uh, being baptized for the remission of his sins before supper. All right, you understand the way that we use the term versus the way that it says used here in the uh, in the uh, in Luke 11. And so, as you look at it, understand that you know it's described sometimes as washing oneself. Sometimes it's used to describe the immersion of one's body in water, uh, such as Matthew 3 and verse 6. Sometimes it is used to describe Holy Spirit baptism, such as Matthew 3 and verse 11. Sometimes it's used to describe the baptism of fire, as uh, John would talk to uh, the, the Pharisees about uh, Matthew 3 and Luke 3. Baptism involves immersion, submersion, and emergence. Here's the garment again. I'm going to take it. I'm going to dip it fully. I'm going to bring it back out so it's fully submerged, and then I'm going to bring it out. It's not designed to stay in that. It's designed to come out and to, well, with his garment, be worn. So as we look at this, again, using the steps of what we're talking about, I'm going to take all the references for the word baptized, the Greek 907, and I'm going to begin to group those into categories. Matthew 3, uh, verse 6, verse 13, verse 14, verse 16. Here are disciples who were baptized by John in the Jordan. So I'm going to say this is a water baptism. This is John uh, uh, um, facilitating that baptism. Also, again, here's some extra references for that and the same, uh, same thing. Matthew 3 and verse 11. He, who baptized, or he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. That's a different medium than baptism in water. And so here's the Holy Spirit. And you can put Jesus, if you like, for uh, the one that's facilitating that. Uh, Matthew 3.11, and then there's some extra references that uh, fit that grouping. And again, we're just using these words and grouping them all in different categories. Matthew 20, Jesus refers to baptism of suffering and of death. All right, so there's a full immersion into suffering and death. Um, also Mark 10, Luke 12. Here's another group. And he shall baptize you with fire, Matthew 3 and verse 11, also Mark 1, 8 and Acts 1, 5. And Matthew 28, verse 19. Here they come baptizing them in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This is also a water baptism, and it's also done to make Christians. And you'll note all the different references where that particular grouping is used. There are a couple, a handful of verses where I don't necessarily know how to group that talking about baptism. We can call them outliers. They don't fit these above categories. Um, talking about John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Greek 907 is the word used, but it's not necessarily uh, in one of these, uh, one of these categories. Um, Mark 7 and verse 4 talks about washing, the ceremonial washing of the Pharisees before eating. We've already talked about Luke 11, 38. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2, Israel being baptized unto Moses in the cloud in the Red Sea. I'll have to go and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and say, what's the metaphor? What's the, the illustration? What's the comparison that he's using there in talking about uh, the way that the Israelites were baptized and into, the, uh, into the Red Sea or baptized um, in the cloud and, and come up out of uh, the Red Sea and then began to uh, rebel in the wilderness? One curious one that we'll look at at the end of the quarter is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. What shall they do who are baptized for the dead? Again, difficult passage to look at, but that doesn't fit any of the above categories. But just referencing these and dividing them up into the way that they're used is going to help us again to understand more about this, <clears throat> more about this, um, this word. As we summarize our findings about this, baptized is the Greek verb. 
baptizo, which is found 79 times in the New Testament. It's a word which means to dip or to immerse. And according to Vines, it involves immersion, submersion, and emergence. The word baptizo refers to several different types of immersion in the New Testament. These include John's baptism, the water baptism for all who would become Christians, Holy Spirit baptism, baptism or immersion of suffering, baptism fire, baptism for the dead, ceremonial washing prior to eating, and a figure of baptism of Israel in the Red Sea. What the summary is designed to do is to synthesize, to grab up all of the elements of this and to write it in just a single, concise way. Again, you find a, a police officer, right? that uh, has, a, um, has a particular instance that happens in a traffic stop. And what are they going to be required to do at the end of that? They're going to have to go back and they're going to have to sit down at their desk and they're going to have to write up a report. What are they wanting? They're wanting every single little detail about what happened the way it happened or do they just want a concise summary of everything that they've experienced, everything that they've studied? If we can take everything that we've talked about and everything we've learned and quantify it and put it down into, uh, into something on the paper, it's going to help us again to have a better understanding of the way the word's used. We'll talk about this more next week, and we'll do uh, uh, really how this is very, very useful, using this word baptized, starting from the very beginning of Matthew, and then going all the way through the ways that it's used throughout the New Testament. All right, so again, we'll look forward to that next week and, and really doing a deep word study. Any questions or comments about that? Sir? If you don't understand the words, you don't understand the message. If you don't understand the words, you don't understand the message. Well said. Anything else? That's a fault of the ones who originally did that 1611 translation because the word baptize, it can really best be rendered immersion, right? It can be really uh, best rendered like that, um, submergence. And so if you look at it and say, repent and let every one of you be baptized, excuse me, repent and let every one of you be immersed for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere that it's translated, or that we see the word baptize, again, as Morris said, is just a transliteration. That is, somebody took the original Greek, baptizo, and they moved it over and made an English equivalent for that. But if we look at it and say, this is clearly showing uh, from Vines, from Thayer's, from Strong's, that this is a method where somebody or something is fully immersed in something. And then they fully come back out. Submission, or excuse me, what do we say? Emergence, um, or su submersion, <laughs> um, uh, overwhelming, and then, uh, then emergence. Then you find that it's, it's something that's completely different than, and less subjective, I guess, than just looking at a word that somebody says baptize. Oh, well, what does that mean? Does that mean sprinkling? Does that mean pouring? Does that mean uh, overwhelming in the water? What are we talking about? And again, if, we, if, if it was translated properly from the beginning, that's, uh, that, would, uh, that would be certainly helpful. Other questions, other comments about that?
Yes, sir. Chandler. Exactly. And Chandler said it's great to, uh, to have um, something like this to be able to, to synthesize everything in every way that the word baptize is used. And then when you're trying to teach somebody, say, okay, let's just wipe the slate clean like we're going to do next week. And we're going to just start from the very beginning of Matthew and talk about the way that water baptism is used and see if we can draw some conclusions based upon that. If you want to prepare for next week, again, uh, what I would encourage you to do is take the list here on this uh, printout. And I want you to go through and look up every single reference that's listed here. Again, I try to do it by, um, uh, well, by, um, by books and then by chapters. And so it should be within a particular book. You should just have to turn a couple of pages uh, to look at it. And note what's there and note the context and note uh, who's doing it and note who's, uh, who it's being done to. And again, we'll, uh, we'll look at that a little bit more closely next week. Thank you guys so much for your kind attention this morning. And we will begin our worship here in just a few moments. And... Uh, and we will see you, Lord willing, next week. Thank you.